0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs? but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: Let's pray together as we come now to uh, God's word. Let's pray. Our Father God, uh, we ask as we come now to look into your word Uh, that uh, as we bow before you now, that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to be thrilled by the person of Jesus and to follow him uh, by faith and uh, in obedience. And we ask this for Jesus' glory, and uh, in his name we pray. Amen. Well, many things can astonish us, For instance, a failed family physician with fewer patients than he needed to be viable returned to his childhood love of writing stories and ended up creating one of the most enduring works of imaginative fiction ever written, Sherlock Holmes, originally to be called Sheringford Hope. Holmes was named after Arthur Conan Doyle's favorite American author, Oliver Wendell Holmes. A failure in his chosen profession led to writing stories that are thrilled and delighted, even astonished ever since. Or uh, I was astonished uh, just this week that the 60th anniversary of the first ascent of Mount Everest was marked by an extreme sports star leaping off the north face at a height of 23,680 feet above sea level. Literature can astonish us. Extreme sports can astonish us. Natural events like childbirth can astonish us. That first time that little hand grasps your finger. Astonishing. But there is one who is more astonishing than any. The highest mountain is a molehill by comparison, the cutest baby a runt. The most brilliant work of literature, whether it be a Shakespeare or Mark Twain, Oliver Wendell Holmes or Sherlock Holmes, nothing more than a poorly written rant. Uh, One of my friends uh, posted on his Facebook page uh, this uh, week an ironical description of uh, what he called how to write good. (laughs) Avoid alliteration always, he wrote. Prepositions are not words to end sentences with. Avoid cliches like the plague askew abbreviations, etc. One should never generalize. Exaggeration is a billion times worse than understatement. George Orwell, in similar, if uh, lengthier vein, described how ideally English Uh, Should be written. Well, compare the worst prose you can imagine, the most frequent redundancies, the most repetitive jargon, the constant use of like, turning the whole world into one giant simile like I was just right, really like you know, like, with. In Kubla Khan did Xanadu a stately pleasure-dome decree, where alf the sacred river ran down to a sunless sea. And then compare that with the Sermon on the Mount. It is not that in this sermon there is better poetry than Coleridge. Cleverer philosophy than Wittgenstein, clearer diction than Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, or even more exciting rhetoric than a sermon by Spurgeon or Whitfield. When we compare what often most astonishes us with this sermon that so deeply astonished them, we'll be astonished when we compare it not with this that was spoken but with him that did speak. Time after time, as people have read the Sermon on the Mount, they have struggled to articulate what it is about this sermon that so astonishes. Uh, Gandhi said that it was the ethics, the morality of the sermon that uh, made him almost a Christian. He admired the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount so that he found it to be more Christian than many of the Christians he met Gandhi was influenced by the Christian writer Tolstoy with his interpretation of the astonishing nature of the sermon. Tolstoy believed that the sermon called us to a glorious passivity in the face of opposition. Gandhi picked up on this interpretation and viewed this sermon as calling us to lay down our weapons, to refuse to combat force with force. And Gandhi went so far as to urge the Allies not to fight Hitler at all, but to engage in what was later called civil disobedience by Martin Luther King, who was himself influenced by Tolstoy, and perhaps, no doubt, Gandhi too. But as we have seen, when Jesus here, at least, tells us to turn the other cheek, he's not describing in this place a political, civil, or military situation. He's talking about interpersonal human relationships. And that doesn't make his teaching any easier at that point. But it does make the teaching less unique. Jesus says himself that he's only rightly interpreting the Old Testament Scriptures. He's come to fulfill them, not to abolish them. And so the teaching itself does not seem to be what it was that they found so astonishing. Yet there is something to the universal appeal of this sermon. Uh, John Stopp describes how a Hindu professor said to Stanley Jones... The Jesus of dogma I do not understand, but the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount and the cross I love and am drawn to. And how a Muslim Sufi teacher once told him that when he read the Sermon on the Mount, he could not keep back the tears. Something that has been revealed here that does astonish. The best way I can think of to describe it is by using an illustration from the movies of Alfred Hitchcock. (laughs) Hitchcock, of course, in his later work, created some scary movies that perhaps uh, some of us would do our best to avoid. But earlier in his career, there were other certainly tense but still creative, exciting, and thrilling in the best sense of the genre in which he was working. You might think of uh, Rear Window, for instance, or Vertigo. Now, if you are a Hitchcock fan, you'll know that he had a characteristic trademark in almost all of his movies. At one point or another, a figure will walk across the camera's vision in the background. If you kept your eyes open, you'd spy Hitchcock himself. They're listening to the movie of the Sermon on the Mount. They're hearing the various themes and sub themes develop, the exposition, the proverbial Old Testament sense of blessing being fulfilled in God's grace and gift to those who know that they need it, the right interpretation of the Mosaic law that Jesus says that he has come to fulfill, the criticism of fake religion and the call for prayer orientated around God as our Father, our Abba. And then as they come to the end of the sermon and the movie begins to come to its denouement, its conclusion… Its final twist in the tale plot, surprise. Out of the background, they suddenly spy Hitchcock himself. The author of the movie is here, he is speaking. He's not speaking by authority like the scribes and experts in the law. He's not quoting commentaries on what rabbi so and so said and how that is to be balanced with rabbi such and such and what he said at point 3.4 point of his multi-volume work on the subject. <laughs> he speaks not by authority but with authority. In fact, he is the author. He steps out of the shade. He comes out from the pulpit. There he is himself. What astonishes them is not the movie of the Sermon on the Mount. What astonishes them is that the author, they now realize, has been speaking to them all along. The Greek word is strong here. Dumbfounded. To be greatly astounded. So, say you've been coming to church all your life. You know the songs. You know the routine. You can say the Apostles' Creed by heart. You can recite the Lord's Prayer from memory. And you know the difference between infra- and supralapsarianism, perhaps. Well, this conclusion to the sermon is designed to help you be astonished by Jesus again. To leave the building this morning and say, wow, or, hallelujah, or on further theological reflection, I find that my heart is strained and warmed by the divine excellencies of the Supreme Being, or whatever it is you say of a Sunday lunch usually, yeah. Well, say that you are instead very aware of the many different religions, philosophies, and ideologies in the world. This is you, and you're more inclined to think the Sermon on the Mount is merely a rather idealistic, respectable, if not always realistic, description of how to be very nice and good. But not saying anything unique or distinct or different. Well, this conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount is designed to have you also leave today saying, wow. Wow. Or this Jesus is speaking with authority, not a moral teacher, but the author. Now, it does that in two ways. The first is by warning. We fail to be astonished by Jesus when we think we can take or leave what He says, that we can listen to the sermon, and it make uh, no difference to our our lives. And this is why so many people fail to be astonished by Jesus, I think. Like a man will fail to be astonished by the beautiful food of a cordon bleu chef if they merely admire it as it is served but never eat. See, the power of obeying Jesus is that in doing so, you begin to be astonished by who he is. You taste and see that the Lord is good. And so Jesus says in verses 15 to 23, beware. There are people who talk a good game about religion, who prophesy impressively. But really, they're not actually doing what I have said. They say, Lord, Lord, impressively enough. They even do miracles. But I never knew them because they did not really follow me. They did not do what I said. They were workers of lawlessness. In a divinely inspired mixed metaphor, Jesus says that you can tell a sheep in wool 's clothing by its fruit. See, a sheep in wool 's clothing is in disguise it 's hard to tell. But if you eat the fruit of a tree, you can tell whether the tree is good or not straight away. Similarly, by the deeds and doctrine, both the morality and the teaching is implied by the fruit, I think. You can tell whether someone is truly a person that uh, Jesus knows. Jesus is not encouraging us to be critical of one another or to be fearful of our own state or to be constantly judging one another, to be constantly navel-gazing introspectively ourselves or fruit-inspecting. He is telling us to beware a profession of faith in Jesus that does not lead to a practice of faith By their fruit you will know. See, Jesus is not the kind of preacher you can ignore. This is what makes Jesus different from any other preacher that ever was or ever will be. You can ignore my sermons. You cannot ignore this sermon. You can ignore my words. You cannot ignore the preaching of this word. Beware, prophetic impressiveness, rhetorical flights of fancy, miraculous fireworks when they do not speak what is true or act what is right. And so Jesus astonishingly says that to enter the kingdom of heaven it is not enough to say to him, Lord, Lord. (laughs) We need to do the Father's will, which in Matthew's gospel is to follow Jesus and obey him as part of the Christian family. That is the fruit of real faith in Jesus, obedience. That is why Jesus says that those who do not obey him are those he does not know. If there is relationship, knowledge, there will be Obedience. And this is what makes Jesus different, astonishingly, from any other person that ever was or will be. You can have a relationship with a friend and not obey them, a colleague and not obey them. But if Jesus knows us, he transforms our lives. And so we begin gradually, inevitably, to produce good fruit. We are transformed by his spirit. We are changed from a bad tree to a good tree. And therefore our lives begin gradually but inevitably to produce the fruit of obedience. Who else but God can say on the last day to those not saved, I never knew you, depart from me. Part of the astonishment of Jesus' conclusion is then the importance of putting into practice what he says. Beware, Jesus says, of those who prophesy but do not bear fruit. It is not enough to listen to this sermon. It is not enough to know how to preach a sermon. You must be transformed by Jesus so that he personally knows you. In A.D. 79, the entire city of Pompeii was covered in a vast deep layer of volcanic ash by the eruption of the volcano Vesuvius. 1,700 years later, the city of Pompeii began to be uncovered by archaeologists and inside was something astonishing discovered. Perfectly preserved humans, dead where they fell, their bodies mummified by the heat and dust of the volcano. Some have been identified as looters, frozen with their legal booty still in their grasp as they fell. You never know when you will be ushered into that day. When you will stand before the judgment throne of this preacher. Books written, sermons preached, miracles performed will avail you none, only that He knows you. Beware. Jesus says, it is astonishing. But not just beware, also build, he says. This is from verses 24 to 27 and is also astonishing. Build, verses 24 to 27. Uh, Some people, it is said, bring joy wherever they go. Others bring joy whenever they go. And, of course, the desire to end sermons or sermon series with a thrill of joy is admirable and can be attained as we focus on Jesus, the source of such joy. But too often, our sermons are different from Jesus's. Whereas his ends with a practical call to obedience, ours end with an implicit message that as long as we have faith, it does not matter what we do. What Jesus has been teaching, justification by faith, as Paul would put it, throughout his message of the Beatitudes, that has been clear, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they have need and cry out to God, what Paul would call justification by faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But there is no point hearing that message if we're not going to put it into practice. The man is not blessed or joyful or wise who hears these words and does nothing about them. Years ago, in his classic book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle wrote, Is it wise to proclaim in so bald, naked, and unqualified a way, as many do, that the holiness of converted people is by faith only and not at all by personal exertion? Is it according to the proportion of God's word? I doubt it. That faith in Christ is the root of all holiness. No well-instructed Christian will ever think of denying. But surely the Scriptures teach us that in following Jesus, the true Christian needs personal exertion and work as well as faith. We need to hear these words and do them. See, the difference between these two houses is that not building on the foundation of Jesus is because they only hear the words they do not do them. We are saved by faith alone. is the key um, distinctive of a Christian to understand that and put their faith only in Jesus. We're saved by faith alone, but as the old Puritans would say, not though by the faith that remains alone. We must build on the foundation. There will be rain, there will be floods, there will be a storm. Only one house stands firm. And if Jesus ends his sermon with a call to obedience, so should we. A.W. Tozer, the preacher, agreed that uh, Bible teaching without moral application could be worse than no teaching at all and could result in positive injury to its hearers. But what makes this sweet, astonishing, more honey than vinegar, is whose words? Whoever hears these words of mine and does them, it is him, faith in him alone, that is the foundation upon which a stable edifice can be built. I was uh, told uh, this week of the Nike endorsement for LeBron James called Witness, earmarked by a massive banner depicting the NBA star with the word Witness above him and him in a cross-like pose, a massive banner that was quickly dismantled when he went to Miami Heat from Cleveland. (laughs) Truly there is only one to whom we must witness. Theologian James Denny wrote, No man can bear witness to Christ and to himself at the same time. No man can give the impression that he is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. All other foundations are sandy, swept away by the flash floods of the Middle East in a moment. But Jesus' words... blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven you are the sword of the earth you are the light of the world love your enemy pray for those who persecute you our father in heaven hallowed be your name store up for yourselves treasures in heaven not on earth seek first god's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Ask, and you will receive. Enter through the narrow gate. Beware. Build. On the foundation of not only hearing these words of his, but doing them. When I first read uh, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, I was astonished. When I went to Banff National Park and stood by Lake Louise, I was astonished. When I looked at the sun setting across the Grand Canyon, I was astonished. What immensity, what profundity, what Beauty. I was not astonished when I saw a small picture of the Grand Canyon, a photograph of Banff, or a paragraph summary on the internet of the Brothers Karamazov. The movie version of uh, The Titanic uh, could be summarized, maybe summarized by two words. it. But to be on the Titanic and survive its sinking would be astonishing. See, perhaps you find Jesus' teaching tame, timid, and tepid because it is just words, not words to be done. A video game of an NBA playoff is not the same as playing. And sitting in church hearing preaching about Jesus is not the same as sitting in church hearing preaching about Jesus and putting your faith in what is said. Uh, We are going on vacation to Canada after next uh, Sunday. And where we will stay, there's a a lake. It's someone else's place there that we're going to. There's a lake where we will stay. And at this time of the year, the summer in Canada can still be a little chilly. Not that dissimilar to here, perhaps. (laughs) You look into the lake and you put your toes in the water take a deep breath and you jump in. Wow, it's cold. You hear Jesus' teaching. It's time to take the plunge and dive in. Or as Jesus would put it, build your foundation upon the rock. It's more risky not to, you know. And as you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, put your treasures in heaven, you will discover more and more just how astonishing is the author of this sermon. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, as we come this morning to uh, the Lord's table in just a moment now, we pray that uh, we would be astounded, astonished, amazed, worshipful of Jesus at the most astonishing moment of his life, the death and resurrection of the christ and we pray this in his name amen